and uh, we'll continue in our worship this morning uh, in the opening of scriptures and looking at another section in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians as we are slowly making our way through this book and we're going to begin reading this morning and uh, from verses 11 or verse 7 sorry and we'll go through the end of verse 15. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and we'll pick up at verse 7. The Apostle Paul continues and asks this question, rhetorical question as you can see. He says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. But what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. God had a blessing to his word this morning. You know, being a a pastor, an elder, a shepherd in the flock, one cannot help being sensitive sensitively aware of the many and varied problems in people's lives. I would suggest that if you're not sensitive to that, you probably shouldn't be a pastor or an elder. And amidst those problems, I find, speaking for myself here, and I'm sure for my other fellow elders and leaders in the church here, amidst all the problems, some are more disconcerting than others. But when all is said and done, the one issue that I find that glares its way to the top for me anyway is seeing a a blatant lack of discernment, especially by those who are in places of responsibility and leadership. I'm thinking of the church in general. I'm thinking of Christianity in general. Seeing the disastrous consequences that a lack of discernment brings upon marriages, and it does, over the many years I've observed this, the disastrous consequences it brings to families and children, and even a person's general well-being, a lack of disturbance resulting in those things is exactly that, very disturbing to say the least. And of course... You don't have me to tell you, but you can see this all around us. People choose and make decisions without discerning 
how it will affect themselves and more so how it will affect others around them. Many people in our world, as you know, they do not deserve truth from error. They do not discern right from wrong. And because of this, families are wrecked. Violence is rampant. Our prisons are full. Justice system is packed. Abortion clinics are exploding and the list could go on and on. All because people lack the astuteness to recognize and discern and to understand that there is a right way and a wrong way and there is truth and there is error. Now this lack of wisdom or this lack of discernment, it is what we expect to see or we can't expect too much else from the unregenerate, from the unsaved, from the world in varying degrees. And of course we do see discerningness in the world. That's by God's grace. He's holding back. He restrains the evil that could have a full force effect in this world. And so in a measure God holds that back and uh, and, uh, but we, we, we expect to see this lack of discernment fleshing itself out big time in the world around us. Why? It's because their hearts and their ears are dull to God's truth and they are naturally bent away from that. But what is more perplexing, what is more perplexing in this than the world's lack of discernment is when we see it happening in the church. You see, when we see it happening among believers in Jesus Christ, that to me is really disturbing. See, because after all, what is the church? What is the church as we look into the scripture? The church, the local church is the pillar and ground or pillar and support of truth, right? That's what it is. 1 Timothy 3.15. It's matter of fact, I'll go this far because this is what Scripture says. It is the only God-ordained organism, institution, organization, if you want to tag it with that, that has been given the truth. He hasn't given it to your workplace, specifically. He hasn't given it to any other group of people. He hasn't given it to the council of churches. He's given it to the local church, to the church. And of course, the head of this church, it's not me, it's not the elders, the head of the church is Christ. And the church is the body. We all know these truths, but it does us good to remind ourselves about them. And when the church, the body of Christ, accepts and tolerates anything other than its head, which is Christ, designs for its body, it becomes gullible and in danger of being led astray from the purity and devotion of Christ. That's what we had last week, verse 3 of this chapter. It's led astray from the purity and devotion of Christ. Well, that's exactly what had happened in this ancient church, this historic church at Corinth that we're reading of. This is what happened. It failed to understand and obey truth. Why? Because it lacked discernment. It failed to discern truth from error and as a result, failed to apply true biblical doctrine and wisdom. But through ignorance and gullibility, it opened the door to Satan's schemes and deceitful error. That's what it did. Well, Paul confronts this error. 
he confronts this, this acceptance, this gullibility, this lack of discernment of accepting, as we looked at last week, another Jesus which produced a different spirit because it was a different gospel than the true apostolic gospel that Paul and the apostles brought. He confronts it. We saw that in verse 4 of this chapter. You see, this error was playing havoc in the assembly at Corinth and it still held some of the saints in its grip. And so Paul resorts, as we looked at last week, to using a way of dialogue that was actually abhorrent and distasteful to him. He resorts to boasting. And what he terms by boasting is he thrusts himself forward and says, take a look at me. He commends himself. This is a last resort way of dialoguing and getting his message across. He wasn't self-noting himself. He was in the hands of God, inspired by, the, by God himself, and he uses himself, rightly, as an apostle of God. And so he calls this foolishness, by the way, even as he does it himself. And he says, bear with me in a little foolishness, verse 1. In other words, listen to what I'm going to say. I want you to have a good look at me. And he uses irony in these verses and sarcasm to get their attention, to shock them into reality and in what they were doing with the truth of the gospel. And by the way, they knew and he, was, he knew that the gospel that he preached when he spent 18 months amongst them, that was the gospel that saved them, brought them out of the world and saved them by God's grace. And so he was getting them to understand this. And so last week, in verses 1 to 4, we saw the error, but we took from that negative section uh, and, and turned it around to have a look at the positive application that we could learn from it. And so we learned from that, uh, verses 1 to 6, four reasons why believers should be loyal toward our God and Savior and His truth in the gospel. This week, we will learn of three distinct marks of true leaders in the church and three marks of false ones. And so, of course, this can be applied to leadership in the home. But primarily, understand that this is about leadership in the church, the leadership of God's people. Because you people, all you need to know this. You know how we talked about a few weeks back, we go into Kurong and we see a plethora of books from one end to the other. How are you going to discern what is right and wrong? How are you going to discern what is truth and error? because everyone that writes up to say this is right, the only way you're going to discern truth and merit is to get back into the text yourself. Check out these things where they be so. Be like Berean. But we need to discern, okay? We need to discern. So, so this, is, this is not only just to be pride for the leaders in the church, but primarily it is. First, let us learn what marks out a true godly leader. We'll see this in verses 7 to 11. And so in this whole section, right from... Um, what we're reading in chapter 11, right through the middle of chapter 12, we see how Paul really steps up the pace on his irony or in his sarcasm, this foolish boasting that he calls it. But in this section from verses 7 to 9, he begins by, by asking a rhetorical question that highlights a, an aspect needful in any godly leader. And that question is, 
we see Paul was a humble apostle and he was a humble servant leader. So humility was certainly the key function in his ministry to God's people. Now, you've heard about humility, you know about humility, and it's a thing that escapes many of us, right? Sad to say. But we see this demonstrated by the Apostle Paul in this section as he ministered at Corinth. And what he does, he puts a real sarcastic testing question to them. And he, he says, do you really think I committed a sin by preaching the gospel to you without asking for wages? That's what he asked them. What this implies here is that they were calling his genuine humility a sin. See, Paul, as a minister of the gospel, had every right. If you remember our when I went through 1 Corinthians, who had that? He had every right, as apostles do, to expect financial support from his converts. You read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 and 12. He says that. He had every right to expect, as some of the other apostles did. But Paul chose of his own accord not to take anything from them. In his freedom in Christ, he says, no. I won't take anything from you. But these Corinthians were being deceived, you see. So they had some big boys behind them supplying the bullets and the Corinthians were, were, were firing them, as it were. They were being deceived by false teachers and these false teachers, their boast was not foolish. Theirs was kind of a, a genuine boast, but it was a fleshly and a worldly boast. They boasted in their professionalism. You want to know more about this? Go and read John Piper's books, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. Excellent book. Okay? So they boasted in their professionalism. They boasted in their vast knowledge, their degrees, and their, their ability to speak and communicate. And they were saying all this expertise, all this professionalism demands payment. They held that these human credentials that they had were what really marked out a true apostle and a spiritual leader. In other words, they were saying, because of our expertise in every area of the ministry, we are worth every cent you pay us and a whole lot more. That's what they were saying. Or any apostle worth his salt will automatically attract the highest stipend. Or we want quality. If you want quality, you've got to pay for it. That's what they were telling the, the believers in Corinth. And that's what the few that were still in their grip were harping on about. You know, they were fully in line with the proverb that we all know so well. You pay peanuts and you'll only get monkeys. Have you heard of that one? Builders will have heard of that one. You pay peanuts and you only get monkeys. And because Paul never asked for money from the Corinthians for his service in the gospel, they decided he must be the monkey. You're not paying anything? He certainly wasn't professional then. Matter of fact, he's probably only a second-rate mere amateur who was way below par at the best because no money was changing hands. You see, folks, they missed the whole point of what makes a leader, a real leader. He must be a humble servant leader. Paul was not a professional in the standards of the world. He was not. He even spoke about how he wasn't skilled in rhetoric or public speaking. He speaks about that back in verse 6 of this chapter. He was unskilled. 
He did not have special training in this like the false prophets did who claimed to disprove their financial worth and honor. As a matter of fact, the, the apostle, you know what he did? He modeled the Lord in his ministry. And that's what we should model too, right? Though he was rich, and I mentioned this in my prayer earlier on, the Lord Jesus, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might be made rich. In other words, the Lord took upon himself the form of a servant at his incarnation. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Philippians 2, verse 7 and 8. Why? Why did he do that? So that believers might be saved, so they might be exalted, and they might be glorified. Humility was the key in the incarnation of our person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the apostle, though having every right to reap material things, the scriptures talk about, from the Corinthians, chose of his own accord not to be a burden to them. He humbly chose to, uh, to eliminate this potential hindrance to their coming to faith and their growing in their faith. He chose that because money was a big thing in the Corinthian culture, a bit like it's, uh, in our day and age today. So that makes you think, well, yeah, he's got to live. Where on earth did he get his financial uh, needs from? You know, he has got to pay for food and rent and probably didn't have to pay for power, but he certainly would pay for oil. This is what he says, I rubbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. Now, don't get this wrong. He uses the word robbed. It's a very strong word. But what it actually indicates and what it tells us is this is how Paul felt. He was kind of gutted in the fact that he had and needed to expect or not expect to accept, I should say, financial resources from churches who were poor. And by him accepting from them, these churches in Macedonia, his accepting money from them made them so much poorer again. And so he was feeling as if he, had, he was robbing them because he had to live in order to serve the Corinthians. His humility in serving demonstrates the mark of a true servant leader. You see, these apostles, these, these, these apostles wouldn't dream of doing what Paul did. Remember on an occasion, you go back to Acts 18, what, what, did he, what also, he not only got accepted money from the Macedonian churches, but he also put his hand to the plough. He was a tent maker. He plied his trade. Uh, he was busy stitching and sewing up canvas, etc., and earning some money that way. So, but these false apostles wouldn't speak or even think of doing what Paul did. Because Why? They weren't free from the love of money like any true godly leader should. A true godly leader will humbly do whatever is necessary to faithfully carry out the work that God has called him to do. You see, humility is the key. Not only is humility the key in a godly leader, but truth is practiced. We see this in verse 10. As you know, folks, it's one thing to speak the truth and even preach the truth as I'm doing here this morning by God's grace, and as Paul did. But it's quite something else to live it out, right? We all know that. 
Well, Paul, the true godly leader, is our example of, of one who lived and breathed and preached the truth of Christ that was in him. And so Paul begins here by taking an oath, an oath based on the truth of Christ. He says, as the truth of Christ is in me, in other words, based on this indwelling truth revealed to me by God, or because of this divine truth that drives and motivates and compels me, I will not change the philosophy of my ministry I will continue to preach and minister to God's people in this whole region without charge. Or I will not and cannot go against the truth of Christ in me. I will not go against my convictions on this, Paul said. No matter what, that was his boast. He put a line in the sand and he would not go over because of the truth that was in him and it convicted him. And he stood fast. You know, he'd already stated back in chapter 2, verse 17 of this book that we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. You see, he was not a huckster. He was not a charlatan. Why? Because of this driving divine truth that was deeply embedded in him. You know, it's rather ironical as we think of this whole thing panning out here and working out. The very thing these false teachers were holding up as a reason for Paul's insignificance and his amateurish ways were the very things that Paul boasted of. You see, those things that were despised by the world and still are, and despised by professionalism, Paul viewed them as what? He viewed them as the crowning feature of a life served in true service of the Master. That's how he viewed them. He has no intentions of reversing his policy or, or reverting to ways of, of the selfish culture around him. Matter of fact, the same idea is carried over into chapter 12 of his book when he says, When I am weak then I am strong. Now that goes completely against the grain of professionalism and uh, the culture and the world around us. Folks, the lesson is plain here. If you want to discern a true and godly leader, he will be a man marked out by sincerity and integrity of the truth of Christ. Truth of Christ and integrity that is given to him through the word of God. To speak the truth of God and to think it is one thing, but to, to live it out at all costs is quite another. Matter of fact, anything else other than that is hypocrisy. You see, for a true godly leader is one who is, is governed, not only in his word, and what he says, and what I might say from the pulpit here or anywhere else, or any of you leaders, whether it's been home groups and his school teacher, a true godly leader is one who is governed in word and deed. By the truth, the truth of God's word. At home, in the business, in the church, in his leisure hours, the truth should and needs to govern him. He is a man who allows God's truth to abide in him and for that truth to be lived out in his life in every area. Not just some, not just Sundays. 
course, as we think about this, it reminded me of the great advantage of being a member of a local church. You get to know us. You get to know the leaders. Elders, deacons, pastors, Sunday school teachers, whatever. Even dads, fathers in the home. You get to know leaders from all angles, don't you? You hear them, you see them, you see them in action, you see them when the pressure is on, when the pressure is off, you see all the ups and downs and how they react and respond. Versus listening to someone on some digital format or looking at someone on a screen who may well have great human credentials. You don't see all the ups and downs. You don't see them in action. This is why I love the local church where you can view us and then you can come to your own conclusion and challenge us, challenge the leaders if necessary if you see some discrepancy. Okay, a godly leader is discerning, is discerned by his practice of the truth. And thirdly, a godly leader is marked by his love. We see this in verse 11. I've often quoted Dr. Stan Toussaint before, and for those who don't know Dr. Stan Toussaint, Steve and Karen will, and they will have empathy with me on this. He used to come out from the States every, every second year and teach us pastoral students at ACM many years ago. And his words of wisdom and counsel in and out of the classroom are still indelibly pressed on my mind and my heart. And we were at some graduation. This is after I'd graduated. I must have been a following year or the year after. Uh, we were at a graduation dinner and I had just taken up the pastorate at New Community Church. And he said to my wife and myself, he said, Jeff, as you serve the Lord in the pastorate, make this your overriding philosophy of ministry. Preach the word and love the people. Preach the word and love the people. He reiterated that. Well, with all my heart and the power of God's grace, I have endeavored to do this, folks, but I know that I have failed in some instances. You see, it's one thing to preach the word, but the rubber really hits the road when it comes to loving people. How I long to love you all as Christ loves you. impartially, sacrificially. May God give me grace to continue to grow in that area. You see, it's easy to love those who love you back, right? It's not so easy to love those who may think ill of you or question your judgment over something or may reject your teaching for some reason. How I need to love impartially like Christ loved like the Apostle Paul loved the people here in Corinth. You see, the Apostle lived out this love. Matter of fact, he wrote the most beautiful piece of poetry on love from his heart, which was inspired by God, that's ever been written. We know that in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, love rejoices with truth. Remember that? Love rejoices with truth bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. 
It wasn't just words from him. He lived that out toward the people who jilted him and despised him and maligned him even. Lord, give me more love like that. See, the Corinthians had become so twisted in their thinking about Paul, they assumed that because Paul did not ask for wages, he must have wanted absolutely no more attachment to them. Because he was making himself aloof by not asking for any wages, he didn't love them anymore. His love for them was zilch. That's how twisted they had become in their thinking. One of the most painful things in life, and you may well know it, is when someone you love, for no right reason, doubts and questions your sincerity in that love for them, in your love for them. And so this is why Paul here asks with a second oath. This is the second oath he takes in this section, in verse 11. Why? Because I do not love you. Here it comes. God knows I do. There's the second oath. You see, Paul had nowhere else to turn. You ever been in that place? We have nowhere else to turn. There was no one else who, who could affirm for him his, his impartial and sacrificial and honest love for them. There was no one. The Corinthians had questioned his love. So what does Paul do? What does he do? He appeals to the highest court anyone can appeal to. He calls upon God as his witness, who sees, by the way, right into the recesses of every single heart and every single motive. And he makes this bold claim, God knows I do. What a refuge in a time of storm, eh, man? When we can call upon God in all absolute sincerity, when all is against us, when you have been falsely accused, like Paul was here, and say with integrity, God knows. Paul loved the people sacrificially, impartially, and persistently. A godly leader is marked by love for his people, no matter what. Now we flip the coin. We flip the coin here. We see that troublemakers in the church exposed. We've seen how humility and truth and love are hallmarks of godly leaders, or any godly person for that matter. Now we'll see the other side of the coin. And you need to know this in order, as I said before, you need to know this in order to be discerning. The old saying goes, forewarned is forearmed, right? The first one is, prideful greed is high on the list of false teachers in the church. I'm not making this up. This is what's in the text. This is what Paul's telling us here, what was going down in the Corinthian church. You know, I'll always remember my brother, just to illustrate this point, probably a poor illustration, but I couldn't help thinking of it when I was preparing this message. I always remember my brother being, arrest, uh, being uh, assigned a firewood-splitting duty for, for a misdemeanor he'd caused in the home. My mum and dad were strict disciplinarians, and um, every crime deserved its punishment, so forth. And anyway, so Russell was out there splitting wood on this fine, beautiful Saturday afternoon, and his mates came by and um, began ridiculing him and giving him a hard time because he had to work, and they didn't because they were off to down the river or something to have some fun. But as they were chiding him, 
they become so engrossed with my brother's skill and efficiency and the speed that he split wood piece after piece after piece. And he was, I have to say, a lot better than me with an axe. And so their pride got the better of them, and you kind of know where the story is going. Their pride got the better of them, and they said, oh, give us a go, give us a go. And so gladly rustled hands over the axe, and all his mates, one after the other, were trying to outdo one another, but specifically they were trying to equal their skill and efficiency of my brother, which they never did. And, of course, Russell got a bonus. He got all his wood split for nothing. (laughs) Well, this is kind of similar situation with the false teachers that were in Corinth and Paul. You see, these false teachers wanted to be as effective as Paul was. That's what they wanted. They wanted the ministry to go forward and to have a following of disciples that were super loyal and that loved them like they originally and initially loved Paul. And so what did the false teachers do? They began maligning and ridiculing Paul for his lack of human credentials. And then they went out all out to match his effectiveness in the ministry. You see, these people in Corinth, they were Paul's converts. He was the one that was called by God to go to Corinth and preach the gospel. Remember the Lord said to him, Paul, I think, was about to leave because it was a hard place. But the Lord appeared to him and said, I have many people in this place. I have much people in this place. And so Paul stayed there for another up to two years ministering and preaching the gospel. A church was planted and he taught them truth. These were Paul's converts, not theirs. This was Paul's calling, not theirs. But they wanted it to be. They were prideful and greedy and would do anything to have what the Apostle Paul had. And so Paul is not perturbed by this pressure and he says that in verse 12. He says, I will continue to do what I'm doing without charge. Why? I like how the NIV translation ends this verse. This is what it says. In order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal for us in the things they boast about. So Paul is going to continue what he, doing what he's doing. That is, he's going to be preaching the gospel. He's not going to be charging the believers any fee. He doesn't expect any, any financial recompense. Why? In order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. You see, Paul would not charge money for this ministry. And although these false teachers wanted and tried to be as effective as the apostle, they would not relinquish their love for money. They would not. They didn't, no reading of, oh, no, they're not charging for money. And let's copy the apostle Paul. No. They were in the ministry for the money and Paul would not help them become his equal by changing his mind on the stand that he had made. False teachers are mostly characterized by prideful greed. Remember that, folks. Remember it. Secondly, false teachers are expert at deception. We see this in verses 13 to 15. The next three verses focus in on the crux of this whole section, actually. You see, Paul no longer uses irony and sarcasm here. He uses plain, upfront, in-your-face language. In other words, no excuse for not understanding it. 
and uh, he really calls out what these troublemakers were. What were they firstly? They were false apostles. See that? That is, they claimed to have been sent from God and by God, but they were not. This reminds us of the many self-appointed prophets, faith healers, health, wealth and prosperity teachers today, right? They claim to be sent of God. But what's behind the deception? Most of those guys are super rich, man. If I had a tenth of their income, I'd be, yeah, whatever. I'd have a, this church building would be bought and uh, wow, whatever. I'd have a jet plane down at the airport. Not too old a one either. We see this happening right before our eyes around the world. You see, the Bible also speaks on numerous occasions of false prophets and apostles and false Christs and, and, and false brethren. Jesus, remember, he warned his generation of false prophets who would come as what? Sheep in wolf's clothing, he tells us of that in Matthew 7 and verse 15. Paul in Acts chapter 20 warned the church about how grievous wolves who would not spare the flock of God's people. He warned about that way back then. This figure or imagery highlights the, the seductive and deceitful nature that, that enshrouds devious workers in the church, wolf and sheep's clothing. And as the main ploy in any false teacher or false leader in the church, their main ploy is disguising themselves. That is, they come across to the gullible and the undiscerning as the real deal. They come across as men gifted in the things of God, but all the time they are imposters. And so we ask, why? Why would they go to so much trouble? Well, the answer here is given here in the next two verses. Firstly, we say that we shouldn't be surprised. That's what it says. Don't be surprised, he says. Don't be surprised at this masquerade because look at their leader. The real leader is Satan himself. And what was his original goal? Surely his original goal, we're told, was to be like God. We read some imagery of that situation in Isaiah 14, verse 12 to 14. And so Satan himself is the expert of all exports in disguise. One commentator said this about Satan's disguise as an angel of light because that's how he's called him in the scriptures. He's an angel of light. And so to the gullible and undiscerning, his leaders would appear as the real deal. But really... The wolf, wolves in sheep's clothing. One commentator said this about Satan's disguise as an angel of light. This is what he says. It is in that guise that he appears to the church that he's an angel of light. It is in that guise that he appears to the church, not the pitchfork, horns, and pointed tail of mythology. Satan is most effective in the church when he comes not as an open enemy, but as a friend. Not when he persecutes the church, but when he joins it. Not when he attacks the pulpit, but when he stands in it. End quote. How true this is, folks. This reality calls for discernment like the Ephesian believers. You know, the Ephesian believers, uh, they weren't a perfect church, as you know. You can read in Revelation chapter 2 about that. They had lost their first love, but this is one thing that they were commended for. The Lord said to them, I know that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are, they are not 
and you have found them false. We were commended for that. But as we see here, these deceitful workers, these agents of Satan and Satan himself, they're going to get their comeuppance, right? They will not get away with their deceitful deeds and masquerade. From Revelation, if you want to read Revelation 20, you will find where Satan's going to end up. The liar, the father of lies, the one who deceives nations. He tells us there they'd be cast into the eternal lake of fire. That's his end. And, and along with him, his workers. And here, because here we see then verse 15, uh, the eternal workers of the destiny of his workers. They're going to be judged according to their deeds. How we need to be discerning so that we do not in any way support, uphold, and exalt an emissary of Satan like these through sheer ignorance of biblical truth. And finally, we see another mark of a false teacher in that they exploit and abuse people. Do you know that? A little bit like Diotrephes. If you don't know who Diotrephes is, he was a guy. And that's his name, Diotrephes, in Third John, the epistle of Third John. And it tells us there he loved to be first among the brethren. He loved to be the head honcho. He loved everyone bowing and scraping to him and doing what he said. He ruled the roost. He did not accept the truth that were given to him by the apostles. That's what it says in 3 John. You see, folks, elders, pastors, are to shepherd the flock of God among you. That's what 1 Peter 5, 2 to 3 tells us. Leaders are not to lord it. That's what the word is. They're not to lord it over the flock. One of the most disturbing facts of life is when a person or people have been deceived into tolerating and accepting as normal the abusive actions of another toward them. That's most disturbing. When people accept and, and consider it normal, horrible things done to them, abusive things done to them. And, and this verse here shows how seriously, in verse 20, how seriously the Corinthians were seduced in that Paul speaks of how they tolerated abusive behavior of these false teachers. See, no one, no one likes or deserves to be abused physically, verbally, or emotionally. No one likes that and no one should be. But attached to any form of abuse, what is attached to it is the ability of the abuser to control and manipulate to the extent that the victim sees no way out and soon is enslaved to this form of life and considers it normal. How sad is that? You know about this, okay? It goes on in our society. We have domestic violence situations all around us. We have, a, have abusive parents. We have abusive children toward children, to parents. Everything. It happens. And so often people are too afraid. They're enslaved and, and, and they accept this as normal. And they are enslaved to it. They're entrapped into it. And they think they've got to go through life with that. Well, this is what happened to the Corinthians. You know that? This is exactly what happened to the Corinthians. You see, it first started by their gullibility, their, by their naivety 
in tolerating false teachers who then abuse them by adding demands in the name of the gospel, in the name of Jesus Christ. And before they knew it, the people's whole eternal destiny was based on a false gospel. It was faith plus works. Now that's abuse. And so these Corinthians became enslaved to this false legalistic gospel and they could see no way out. Even to the point of questioning the true apostle from God, Paul himself. False teachers exploited their faith in God and, and twisted it to include an exalting of themselves. They made sure they were up the top themselves at the expense of the people exalting Christ alone. Their freedom and faith alone and Christ alone, it was robbed from them. How terrible is that? My dear people, this is characteristic of false teachers. They exploit and abuse and manipulate people for their own adoration and financial gain. This is what it is all about. And we see it today. The extreme of it, we have, a, have many cults that are like that. Many of you won't remember. Some of you older folk here, like myself, will remember the Jim Jones of South America. Remember? That started off all in the name of Jesus. And the people were so enslaved and so brainwashed and so into their thinking, they all ended up taking cyanide and I forget how many killed themselves, a hundred odd people. But to a lesser degree, but just as dangerous, a lot near our own camp, we have legalistic groups who would add to the gospel. The gospel is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. And soon as we add anything to that, soon as we say, you must not wear this, or you cannot go here, or you must do this, etc., etc., to be accepted by God, that is abuse, spiritual abuse. So let's wrap up here. We've seen the virtues of godly leaders and also what marks out false leaders in the church. So how do we protect ourselves from being deceived like the Corinthians? Well, the first lesson that we can learn from Paul's contrast between himself and the false apostle is, number one, don't be sucked in by smooth talkers with communication skills that can sway the mind and emotion. Be very careful. Secondly, move beyond what the teacher says or what he writes in his book and look at his life lived. Does he practice in his life what he preaches? And if you have not got access to looking at his life, all I can say is be very, very careful. Thirdly, don't make tolerance the main employ of being wise and discerning. Because you know what? That only proves a lack of conviction and understanding of the truth of Scripture. Be like the Bereans. Go to the Scriptures. Get some help if you need be, but go to the Scriptures and check out what God has said to see whether these things are so. May God add his blessing to his word this morning. I wonder if we can stand and I'll just close with a, a benediction from Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, and then we'll uh, close our time together. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. And the people of God said, 